Hello, and welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Dr. David Priest. David is the publisher of Lawfare and the chief operating officer of the Lawfare Institute. He's also a senior fellow and a visiting professor at George Mason University. David served at the CIA as an intelligence officer, a manager, and a daily intelligence briefer during the presidencies of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. During the Bush administration, he personally delivered the president's daily brief for more than a year to Attorney General John Ashcroft and FBI Director Robert Mueller, and occasionally into the White House. David has written two books about U.S. presidents, The President's Book of Secrets, and his most recent book is How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. David regularly appears in national media to discuss the presidency, intelligence, and national security issues. David, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. It is great to be talking to you again, Fred, and it is great to be on the Antic podcast for the first time. Well, it's our pleasure to have you, David. You uh, have been so kind to me over the years with uh, supporting my books and so forth. And uh, I must say we had the President's Book of Secrets in our fall reading list. In fact, it was number one on my list because I think so highly of the book. Well, I am honored. I looked at that list and there were some great books in there that I've read that I don't think I'm worthy to be above, but also a couple of books that I have not read. But because of your suggestion, I'm certainly going to be checking them out. David, in the course of putting the president's book of secrets together, you spoke to every living president, vice president, and former CIA director, which is just an amazing task in itself. How the heck did you pull that off? Yeah, the the biggest obstacle, there is a caveat there, which is all of those positions and more from former administrations. Because one thing that is universal is a current administration does not like talking about the details of its secret intelligence. And I don't just mean the classified content itself. But most of the leaders don't like talking even about the process for the intelligence when they're in office. So, yes, when I was researching the president's book of secrets to tell the story of the president's daily brief and its long history, I started reaching out to people that I knew that I had worked with when I was an intelligence briefer and basically used this, you know, can can we talk to this person next? Can we talk to this person next strategy? And thankfully, I didn't screw up the interviews early on so badly that people refused to make recommendations for me. And before I know it, I'm getting interviews with all the former CIA directors who were 
were still alive from previous administrations and national security advisors and secretaries of state and defense. And eventually I get to President George H.W. Bush, whom I know that uh, you're a fan of as, as I am. And I end up talking uh, to his people and getting some input from him. And he enjoyed the project so much, in fact, that he wrote the foreword to the book. But I also found out later that when I reached out to people like Bill Clinton and others, that he had put in recommendations to them saying, please talk to this guy. He's legit. So I, I had a lot of help along the way, basically. It was not me going in saying, hi, I want to talk to you. And they said, oh, of course, you're David. Many of them didn't know me from from Adam. So I had some help along the way. And thankfully, almost every single person who I tried to talk to about the PDB agreed to talk about it. And only a couple of people did so off the record. David, for those not familiar with the PDB, what is it and what is it used for? You bet. The PDB is an abbreviation for the President's Daily Brief. And this is the document that has gone to the President of the United States, whoever it is, uh, every working day since the mid-1960s. And it's special because it is a direct line of communication between the analysts in the U.S. intelligence community, initially just in the Central Intelligence Agency, but for the last more than 15 years from the entire intelligence community, a direct line from them to the president and an opportunity for the president to give them direct feedback and ask follow-on questions through this, this document. And it contains or can contain anything that the U.S. government collects. And some of that is open source material. Some of that is information available in in newspapers and from open commentary, but a whole lot more is from information that's collected clandestinely. So you can have human intelligence reports. You can have intercepted communications. You can have information derived from imagery and measurements and electronic signals. Basically, anything that's out there is restricted in almost every other disseminated intelligence product for security reasons. But the president's daily brief is designed for only the president and for the select few that the president elects to also receive the document. And therefore, it is very secure, very tightly controlled and full of the best secrets that will help the president to anticipate and forestall threats and also to identify and take advantage of opportunities in the international realm. David, how did the PDB come into creation and why? One of the things that's a little bit surprising about the history of intelligence in the United States is that we didn't have a systematic intelligence analysis operation until World War II. And even then, it was not quite the way that it is now. And we didn't have a daily dump of intelligence to the president of the United States in a recognizable form until really Harry Truman. And even then, it was not personalized for Harry Truman. It was information that was compiled to make judgments that the analysts thought might be interesting to senior policymakers, including the president. But it was not designed with Harry Truman in mind. It was designed with senior leaders in mind. Well, that changed for John F. Kennedy because the previous intelligence products were not working for him. He was not engaging with them. And so they designed something called the President's Intelligence 
checklist or the PICL for the abbreviation, because everything in government must be abbreviated. And it worked. It was written in a journalistic style. It was in a physical format that worked for Kennedy to carry around with him to read between meetings. It was a hit because it was personalized for the person who was occupying the office of the presidency. Therefore, when Lyndon Johnson took over for John F. Kennedy, the thought was, well, we'll just make some slight adjustments to this pickle, the PICL, and that'll work for him. But there was a problem, Fred. John Kennedy and his staff had not allowed Vice President Johnson to see the president's intelligence checklist. They had shut him out. He wasn't even aware that it existed. So it's really no surprise that Johnson didn't take to this new document. He surely knew that this was something, or he figured out that this was something that had been out there, but he had not been privy to. So in 1964, they took the document they had, they reformatted it, put it in a a bigger format for, for Johnson to read. They changed the way they approached some of the content in it, and they renamed it, and they called it the President's Daily Brief. And that name has stuck for the, what is that? almost 60 years since, even though the format changes for every president, the name and the idea has been the same since December 1964. Yeah, that's an amazing uh, backstory. David, who decides what actually goes into the PDB? That has also changed over time. Initially, it was two or three men, and they were all men back then, two or three men who led the Office of Current Intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency. They looked at all of the analytic production from around the CIA, and each evening they got their heads together and rewrote the pieces into the format of the PDB, and they decided what went. And at the very beginning, they didn't even give the document to other officials within the CIA. It was considered a direct line to the president from that office. That changed pretty quickly. No boss likes having the president get something from his organization and not knowing what's in it. Over time, a bureaucracy developed around it, as happens with most things in government. And so now there is a a process where analysts can nominate items to go into the president's daily brief. If you're the analyst on Kuwait and you think something urgent has happened that is worthy of the president's attention, you can suggest to your management, who can suggest to the staff that manage the PDB, that this be included in the next book. But there also is an editing team that is looking at the evolution, the flow, the development of presidential interest, and they have a sense of what the president needs, perhaps based on upcoming meetings with foreign leaders, perhaps based on upcoming meetings of the National Security Council, or just presidential feedback from previous editions of the book. And that staff, can reach out to the analytic community and say, you know what, you haven't nominated something on Kuwait, but we think the president would really benefit from something on this situation in Kuwait. Can you get us something today that we can get into the book? So there is a process involved. Ultimately, it could be the decision, although I don't think it is in a practical sense, it could be a decision of the director of national intelligence or DNI. This is the person that oversees the PDB production process. That is delegated usually to a senior officer who works for the DNI, but ultimately the DNI could make a decision every night to look at the pieces in the book. Normally, there are several pieces of analysis that make up the PDB, and the director 
could say, no, we're not putting that one in and I'm going to have this put in instead. Um, that is certainly possible, although delegation seems the smarter strategy because there are many other things on the DNI schedule. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Ontech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontech Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. David, process-wise, uh, tell our listeners how this actually goes about. Do you do you walk in the room with the briefcase with the handcuff on your wrist or talk us through the actual process? Yeah, um, I won't go into the details of the security because some of those methods are still used. But let me just say that great, great pains are taken. And in some cases, yes, they are pains to ensure that the physical PDB is secure. There are no cases that I know of of somebody casually handling the PDB and it being lost on the streets, as you hear about so many other cases of um, top secret documents in various countries that have somehow been left on the backseat of a, a cab or something like that. You don't hear that about the PDB. As a briefer, which I did for a little over a year, my job was to take the PDB and other intelligence materials downtown. My usual customers, as we called them, because it is very much a service that we provide, uh, my usual customers were the attorney general and the FBI director, but I also did take the PDB into the White House a few times. My process was to come in in the middle of the night, or frankly, a little bit earlier than the middle of the night, usually very, very early in the morning or late in the evening before, and spend a few hours looking at the items that were planned to go into this book. And that can change right up until the briefers leave the office uh, later in the morning. But usually you have a good sense of what's going to be in the book uh, later that day. So we'd look at the draft pieces of what was going to be in the book. We'd make sure that we could answer basic questions about them if our customers had such questions. We would read any background notes that the analysts who prepared those pieces would have ready for us. And we would try to read all of the material in the PDB through the, the mindset of our customer to understand what they would be curious about and what they would need to know in addition to what was in the printed form in order to do their jobs. And that meant that a few hours of those early morning, um, a few hours of those early mornings were dedicated to looking up additional intelligence products or chasing down the analyst who wrote the piece to ask the questions that they had not anticipated because they weren't looking at it through the lens of your particular customer. And then depending on the customer's schedule, uh, you would leave CIA headquarters back in the day and you would get downtown to where your customer usually took the briefing or to their home if they took the briefing in their home, as people like the vice president often did back then at the Naval Observatory. 
and you would want to be there when they started their day because most of the customers wanted to read the document when they wanted to read the document before everything else that they had to do that day. That meant that the day starts early, but the day ends early and you end up spending the rest of the day giving feedback to authors of pieces and helping them understand what the customer had in mind uh, and wanted to hear more about. So David, you're in that hot seat and you're there in front of, let's say, former FBI director Bob Mueller or former Attorney General John Ashcroft or the former president and they read something in the PDB and they look at you. What happens if they start asking questions? Yeah, the job of a briefer is to be helpful to that customer when it comes to the intelligence. It is not to be a policy advisor. It is to make sure that they understand what is known from the intelligence, what is not known from the intelligence, and the confidence that intelligence analysts have in their judgments about what's going on based on that mix. As such, you really want to answer their questions if you can. And that's why the bulk of my working day was overnight prepping and researching on these finite topics so that I could answer the questions that I anticipated they would ask. And it was probably the first few weeks that I was briefing Bob Mueller and John Ashcroft, I was not very good at anticipating their questions because I had not been an FBI director or an attorney general before, certainly, but I'd, I'd never even worked inside those bureaucracies to understand what it was that they went through on a daily basis. So I would tend to get questions that I had not anticipated and I didn't always have the answers to. And I would have to say, I don't know, let me find out. And almost anything they asked, there was something I could find out. And I would go back to the CIA and I would get the question answered by the appropriate expert and either get it directly to the principal later that day, or I would provide it the next day if it was not urgent. Um, as the briefing tour went on, I began to understand their mindset better. And by the end of the briefing tour, I usually could read the draft piece in the middle of the night, and I would immediately hear in my head the voice of Bob Mueller with a question. I could read it through, through his mindset well enough that I probably was batting over 90%, uh, batting over 900, which is a pretty good batting average, Sure. at what Mueller's questions were or what John Ashcroft's questions were, because by then I had a sense of what they asked about and why they asked about it. And that helped me a lot because then I could go into the briefing and I could actually put that into the briefing originally, even before they asked, or I would be prepared to answer it directly if they did ask. David, did they ever put you on the spot and say, help me out here? What do you think, David? I did have a few cases like that. Most briefers get that eventually. And it does usually come later in a tour when you've earned the confidence of the customer. Usually you've bought credibility by giving it to them straight, by not offering advice, by not playing policy games, but just by describing the intelligence picture and relaying what the analyst's best assessment is. A natural byproduct of that, especially for a senior official who deals all day with people trying to advocate for something, trying to argue that what they think is the right thing, and therefore the principal should do what they want 
it's a little bit refreshing to have this officer whose only job is to describe the facts and the assessments as they see it without any policy axe to grind. So it wasn't surprising to me that a few times I did get the question of, well, what should we do about this? And I had to remind them that that was not my role in this very large bureaucracy that is the U.S. national security community. My job was to give them the information they needed to consult with the president or with other senior officials to decide what to do on these thorny issues that the intelligence was providing some insight into. Now, I could get away with that with my customers. They understood my role. There were a few issues that I felt comfortable offering my opinion on because I had some personal experience with them. But overall, I would generally say, no, I'm not going there. And they understood that. It's a little bit different if you're talking to the president of the United States. First of all, any briefer who's in a position where the president of the United States is asking them, so what do you think we should do about this, should have the wisdom and judgment to know the president is not going to make a major policy decision based on what some you know, GS-15 analyst from the CIA is going to say in a briefing. They're going to put that in with all of the other inputs they're getting. So don't fool yourself. The president is not going to move the fleet or issue an order to kill or capture a terrorist uh, based on only what you say. On the other hand, it's not good enough to say to the president, Mr. President, that's not my job. I'm an intelligence briefer and I'm not going to answer your other questions because the president is the commander in chief. He knows the system. He knows what your role is. And if he thinks that you have some insight that he will factor in, that is his judgment, not yours. As long as you've been very clear that it does not represent the views of everyone in your agency or department, it's just your assessment, then you can offer the president what you think is going on. Um, what you want to make sure you do is you don't in any way confuse the picture by clashing with what a piece of analysis says that the wisdom of the intelligence community has offered to the president and make it appear like you're undercutting that analysis. Yeah, that's fascinating. David, we have a lot of senior security officers and executive protection personnel that listen to our podcast. They are with the CEOs of major corporations every day and so forth. What advice would you offer to those individuals in those positions when the CEO asks you questions? Yeah, it's a different role, but it has some similarities. And I think the most important thing for senior security officers to do is to be very clear with the CEOs and the COOs and the other um, C-suite personnel when it is you are speaking as a describer of fact or as a, an analyst of something that is going on and when it is you are advocating for something. And let, let me break that down a bit. The role of a head of security or a, a, even a chief of operations in some cases, sometimes you're saying, this is the threat to our personnel, or this is what we assess is a vulnerability in our facilities. And when you're doing that, you want to be seen as the honest broker. You want to be seen as somebody who's delivering often bad news, but you're doing it because the decision maker needs to know the lay of the land. They need to know the facts. That is different than when you say, and therefore, you need to authorize hiring 1,000 more personnel that will work for me. That, that may be your recommendation, and that's fine. 
but you need to separate out those and make them very explicit and say, I'm going to describe the facts. You need to make decision based on this fact. If you want my opinion about those facts, I'm going to be very clear when I'm expressing that and make that different than the actual threat assessment, if that's what the actual situation is. That, that gives you credibility in terms of continuing to describe the facts as you see them in other cases. Honestly, it also makes the senior most people in the company trust your judgment more on the opinions because they know you're willing not to manipulate the information to get your preferred policy outcome uh, through the CEO's decision-making apparatus. Yeah, that's very sound advice. Now, let's switch gears, uh, David, and kind of end on a lighter note. Uh, Is there one particular funny story that you could share with our audience uh, concerning these interactions with these senior government officials? Yeah, there's 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 several. In fact, um, there are many better stories that I was not a part of that I did write about in in my book, uh, the President's Book of Secrets. But there's one story I did not put in there that that later on I did get uh, approved to tell, and it is a personal story. And to me, it spoke to the the integrity and the I don't know what to call it the lack of an interest in making a media splash as opposed to doing his job of one uh, director, Bob Mueller at the FBI. And it was one day I was in the room that I normally briefed him in. I'd gotten there early as I often did. And I looked at the clock and I noticed that it was time for our briefing or very, very close to it. And he had not yet arrived. And that was unusual. Uh, Director Mueller was a very punctual man. And just as the thought was was making its way through my my slow neurons, right when I had the thought, oh, he's a little bit late, I hear footsteps outside because the door is is slightly ajar. And I hear footsteps coming towards the room. And sure enough, I see him push his way through the door, turn the corner slightly towards me because of the angle of the room, as if he's going toward the normal seat where he would receive the briefing. But as he does so, I also noticed that right behind his head, trailing him into the room, is a boom microphone, and I hear other voices and footsteps outside. And I think, well, that's unusual. Um, I'm sitting here with the most secret document in the U.S. government, open wide, ready to brief him, and um, it looks like there's a media team behind him. And I don't know if he saw the look on my face or if he had the thought at the same time, but he stops where he is. Uh, almost directly behind me as he's walking behind me to a seat around the other side of me. He stops and kind of points back, gestures towards the door, says um, something like, you know, CBS or NBC, you know, media crew here, like filming a day in the life of the director. Um, So he said something like, you know, film crew, you know, can they come in or not? And I'm stunned because it's his room. It's not my room. It's not my decision to make whether there should be a film crew in there. Um, but between the look on my face, probably glancing at the PDB, glancing at him, glancing at the PDB, glancing at him, um, or me feebly saying, no, they shouldn't be in here. Um, one of those two things seemed to work because without even a look, it was, it was a deft move. Without even looking, he reached his arm back and slammed the door, uh, I think hitting the boom microphone, or at least coming very close to it, and uh, then proceeding to sit down. And within three seconds, we were probably uh, into the first item in the briefing. And 
to me, that was interesting for two reasons, uh, reflecting back on it over the years. One is it, it said a lot about Bob Mueller. Um, here was a chance. It was not long after 9-11. He obviously had been convinced to let some film crew follow him around for a, a day in the life of a director type of, uh, type of documentary. And yeah, it probably would be good for his image to show this very serious briefing room and to have somebody covering up material because it's so secret. That probably is a good visual. Um, that wasn't important to him. What was important to him was the judgment of the officer with the material saying, no, you know, don't, don't, don't come in here. That will change things. Um, the other thing it, it showed me was his ability to compartmentalize and get down to business because this was unusual. We normally didn't have a film crew following the FBI director around, certainly not right into the room of the briefing. And yet, when I reflected back on the briefing itself, there was no distraction and there was no, there was no rushing to get out of the briefing to get back to the film crew. It was like any other briefing, which he took seriously and asked strategic questions, tactical questions, all of the things he normally did. Um, and that's not necessarily a Bob Mueller thing. I think that is a PDB customer thing because it is very sensitive information. It is very special information. Great care is taken to collect it, to analyze it, and to disseminate it through this very special briefing process. And I think the vast majority of recipients of the PDB over the years would do very much the same thing, which is put their head down and focus on the intelligence, even if they had distractions in their life. They would find a way to make sure that they paid attention because literally lives could be at stake. David, I want to thank you for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. And I want to thank you for the opportunity, and I hope that it's useful for all of your listeners. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.